Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Now, look, I told y'all, I told y'all last week that as we look at the holiday season, we're going to be um, having some return guests to really just see how they're doing and also just have some really frank conversations. Now, look, I'd be lying if I said we don't have frank conversations every week, but there are a few guests and friends of the show who I really know when I bring them back, when I bring them on Living Corporate, we're going to keep it frank. All right, we're going to keep it 100. We're going to keep it a thou wow. <laughs> and today, uh, this episode, this conversation, this guest is one such situation. So I'm just thankful. Shout out to Audrey Blanche at Culture Amp. Really thankful for the work that she's doing. And just the conversation we're able to have. I don't even want to like you know, get too heavy into, I actually want us to get to the conversation. So I just want to, again, thank you. Uh, shout out to the work that you're doing before we get to the conversation though, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan. And I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's discuss a few things to help you stay on track and achieve your 2022 goals. The holiday season and end of year brings about a ton of reflection. We start to think about our families, personal lives, and professional lives. We go through a mental pros and cons list of our current jobs. Many of us begin to set new career, fitness, savings, and personal goals. Some of us even set new year resolutions. But almost all of us have had an issue sticking to those resolutions or seeing those goals through to completion. So let's talk about a few tips to help you achieve your goals this year. First, reflect on the goals you had this past year. Did you achieve some? Of course you did. It's so easy to get caught up in the frustration of not achieving some of your goals that you forget to celebrate the ones that you did accomplish. So practice a bit of gratitude. Then ask yourself, what went well with these goals? Was there anything that surprised me or that I'm proud of? Now, did you fall short on some goals? If you did, that's okay. I can guarantee you aren't the only one. Take a moment to think about what didn't go well. What held you up from achieving the goal? How can you avoid these issues and pitfalls in the future? Practicing a bit of reflection and gratitude before getting into goal setting can put you in the right mindset and build excitement for next year's goals. Next, work on setting goals that are realistic and detailed. When setting goals, it is easy to get caught up in what you or everyone else thinks you should do instead of what you actually want to do. Instead of setting a goal because it logically is the next step, ask yourself if that's what you really want. 
A couple of great reflection questions include, what do you wish you could do more of? What do you wish you could do less of? What's missing in your career right now? Where do you want to be by this time next year? From there, find the immediate next step you can take to make those things happen, then attach numbers and dates to those things so you can motivate yourself and hold yourself accountable. Lastly, once you set the goals and added dates, tell people you trust who will help you and hold you accountable. It's incredibly easy to put a goal on the back burner when no one knows that you set it and you're only accountable to yourself. Identify people who may have resources to help you or people who are just really good at checking in and holding you accountable and let them know about the goal. Leveling up is much easier when you have people to support you in your corner. Goals are great to have and they can serve as a guiding light when we sometimes lose our direction. But remember that all goals can and should be modified or replaced if your circumstances and situations change. Remember, give yourself some grace. This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Aubrey, what's going on? Oh my gosh, so many things. I feel like everybody's like both sprinting and crawling to the end yes. of the year. Wow. <laughs> um, That's so accurate. No, I just think it's been a big one. And from everybody that I'm talking to, it's been big in different ways for everybody. But we're all in this mutually shared space of like, I'm ready to lay down for a minute. So it's it's wild because like, I know we first connected. Um, you know, I'm gonna give you some flowers up front, right? So like, what I really appreciated is you had a willingness to engage with me. And I think I shouted this out the first time. I'm gonna say it again, right? It's like, I don't know, you talk to a lot of people in these DEI spaces and like they're kind of just kind of like like F tier celebrities like they're not necessarily really trying to do any real work they definitely don't want to talk to you um and so it was really refreshing that like you know you've just been like always really responsive and you DM me randomly and be like how can I support you which is super fire so like I just want to yeah. I want to shout that out and give you your flowers and thank you for that um yeah yeah you're no problem now look now I last time you were here um, we were talking to you about Culture Amp. Um, and you know, you're the you're the global head of equitable design and impact. And like, let's break that down tactically and practically. Like, what does that actually mean for you and your job? Yeah. So maybe I'll tell you a little bit of a story about how I got my job title. Uh, okay. I think it's kind of illustrative. So um I was being a little bit arrogant. Just a little teeny bit. Gotta be a little bit though. I roll. I mean, to do this work, right? Like to be arrogant enough to believe that like your world can change and that you can do something about it, I think requires a little bit of stubbornness. But when I went into my interview now two years ago with with Didier Elzinga, who's the CEO of Culturamp, and I said, I'm so interested in this job. Here's all of the reasons why I will not take the job if you keep the job title as head of diversity and inclusion. And he was like, okay, like, I need you to tell me more about this. Like, I'm not, you know, stuck on this, but I need a reason. And I really said, because the problem is that we're doing diversity and inclusion and we need to do equitable design. And he was like, explain this concept to me because he, he was willing, you know, open-minded enough to go on the journey. And what I always talk to people about, I'm very heartened by the fact that we're moving to this like DEI from DNI, but I actually don't really give a shit about diversity and inclusion. And the reason for that is because I believe that diversity and I believe that inclusion are the outcomes of equitable processes and experiences. So in the same way that like, whether this is my meditation practice or it's like therapy or it's, 
the way that I'm helping culture and think about building equitable technology, or it's building people experiences internally, like we engage in a process. We're all involved in these constant processes of becoming. And so I think it's just a more useful frame to say, right, in each moment that we come into, what is the next right equitable thing to do? And for a CEO, that's going to look different than for me. And like Zach, it's going to look different for you because your identity is different. Your context is different. But like if we engage in this constant process of becoming more equitable, we get to those outcomes. But when we focus on diversity and inclusion, we do tokenistic bullshit, right? Because we want our careers page to have enough Black people on it. Or, right, or we create an inclusive environment, but only for a small group of people because we can't tolerate the difference that like, an equitable organization requires. And so I think that's it for me is it moves from like this laser focus on the outcome to like something that we can actually own and that's right in front of us, which is the next right equitable thing. And so that's why the job title is there because I wanted to signal to Culture Amp, this is a process of transformation, not a journey that we're not a destination that we're getting to. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think about, I, I think about like the way that we even talk about um, some of these terms that we've created and by we, I don't mean me. I mean, really mostly white people, uh, all, white people have made all these terms that don't really mean anything. Right. But they, they sound great. So like we even, I've, I used to ask people like, so like define inclusion, like what is inclusion? And people say, Oh, well, it's, you know, making sure everyone feels like they're included. And like the first thing in my mind, I was like, okay, so you said feel. So that means that it's not something you have, you can necessarily measure. And, um, by, by extension of that, uh, I don't have to hold you. I can't really hold you accountable to it. It's like this ethereal thing that you just kind of are constantly groping after. Um, to your point, though, I think the other reason why people. Some of it is just ignorance in terms of folks just don't really understand what equity means, uh, like like white folks in charge don't typically understand what equity really means outside of like I'm giving you shares and something. But the other thing is, I think that equity is also hard. Right. And so it's hard. Like it, equity is hard to achieve. And so like. I hear you and I agree that like, you know, it's even now, like the shift that pivot and language has changed. I don't, to your point, I don't think it's because people are like, have this new reinvestment on organizational equity or anything like that. I think it's more about just, we're kind of following the trend of the time, right? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just the same thing, the same reason why people might put DEIB or like, there's a bunch of different variations. Or right? like Jedi now. Yeah, Jedi. Jedi. And my thing, so my thing about that is, is like, my thing about Jedi is like, yo, y'all are not ready to talk about justice. Like that is. I mean, that's my, th- so that's my thing is like, I totally own that. I work in like a highly, like I work in VC backed hyper growth technology. Like I understand I'm in the middle of the belly of the capitalistic beast, despite yeah. my own values and feelings. Yes. And for me, I make peace with it because I'm like, my agenda at Culture Amp is that like, it's a rocket ship and I want to pack as many black and brown people into the rocket ship before it IPOs as possible. Because right. I believe that like this sector, this industry, these types of companies are the best opportunity for us to reclaim stolen generational wealth. Right. And so like, that's my thing, but I accept the shitty trade-offs that come with that. But I'm like, I can't achieve justice inside the middle of capitalism. I just don't think it's possible. So, cause for me, I mean, I still have questions and I've, I've raised this like with several folks, like, you know, like just in different contexts of just like how realistic is even organizational equity? Like how possible is it in a capitalistic context? Like I, 
and it's not I don't know if there's necessarily an answer right now. It's just like I really ask that my, I ask myself that often. Like it's like like you know just so you know as an example, right? You think about uh, Netflix with Dave Chappelle, right? So I was talking to somebody and they were like, man, you know, Verna should have been able to do something. Verna Myers, the head of, so, and I was like, well, maybe, right? I, and I was like, I was like, it depends on like Verna's context at Netflix. Like, I don't actually know how much real power she has to like really shift anything. Like, is Verna sitting at the rooms uh, with the contract negotiation to say, hey, look, we need to put clauses in here that if they create this and that we have an exit and we can do this. And that. like, no, like, I don't think so. Like I could be wrong, but I'm just saying like, I don't. And so it's just, there's a question of like, like when it, when push comes to shove for real, like not theoretically, not like in some internal fireside chats, but I'm saying like when push comes to shove and you think about like really creating a sense, a, a culture of belonging and equity for black and Brown people, or making millions upon millions of dollars and you had to choose i i think the i think the money is going to win am i wrong so i was going to go a totally different way from you i was going to be like great wait we're putting the onus of fixing it on a black woman who didn't that's a point that's a point too i even that's I, so, the whole thing when people like because i saw the chatter where they're like verna should have done verna should have done that. i was like how about the white dudes in charge writing contracts should have done some shit about that's that. a like, point that's a good point too. Her, she's doing her job like my assumption my assumption is she's doing the best she can in the context she is and i don't know right. what that means but that's my baseline assumption that she's competent and she's like doing what she's doing right but this is the whole thing um like I remember in like previous roles where I was the head of diversity and I was like not emotionally boundaried where like I took responsibility for every inequity and every lack of ex- like every lack of inclusion and I've gotten to this point where I'm like we as practitioners should be invested in care and do the work but we are not responsible for the outputs of the system that we're seeking to change mm-hmm. and I just sorry that was I was coming from a different angle but I I agree with you I so agree with you but that's a but that's a great point too though emotionally boundary you know I I'll share you know that as I and I've been having these discussions with my therapist all year is like what what does effective boundary make like setting even look like like for me as a person for me in this work you know you think about like as someone and I, and I think I think boundaries are like especially for like historically oppressed like folks come folks coming out of or just people coming out of historically excluded oppressed groups like boundaries are scary because um, especially in corporate context, you saying no may mean you not being able to have an opportunity or not be able to keep your job. And so there's a pressure. I think there's an additional pressure, um, especially if you are like a black or brown woman or certainly a black trans woman, like to just figure out like, okay, like what am I allowed to say no to and not lose any social capital in these spaces so that I can continue on my, but so like, I just love that. Like that just, that, that run, that really resonated with me emotionally boundary. Cause I've been thinking about boundaries in the context of, Hey, my time is my own. I'm not going to work after a certain amount, but emotional boundaries, like, and, and being emotionally boundaried and not internalizing um, outcomes of things that you don't, that, that it's not in your bailiwick to, to manage. That's important. Yeah, like the so the language that I found really helpful with my therapist, I love therapy mm. for you, I love therapy for everyone, um, is this idea of how do I hold myself accountable but not responsible? 
Mm. And so like, I think in my role as like director of equitable design, it's like, I'm accountable for driving outcomes. And like, Mm. that's a thing that people can come to me if I'm failing at that and give me critique or tell me why I need to do better. Or maybe I get a high five if like we've hit a target or a goal, but like, ultimately I'm working within a system that's producing the outcomes it's currently designed to produce. And so Mm. In the same way, I'm not responsible for other people's feelings. I'm not personally responsible for, I'm I'm not personally responsible for inequitable or equitable outcomes. Mm. And I think that's also important too, because we talk about like the emotional weight of taking it on, but it's also really important in this work that like, I'm accountable for driving change at Culture Amp and for us helping to keep our anti-racism commitments. But ultimately, I think it's an important part of the humility of this work, because like right now, DNI people are like kind of, yeah, like F list celebrities is never ever think that you get to claim responsibility for that outcome mm. because there's too many other people that were and so like for me I think it both helps keep me like emotionally from like burning out and getting compassionate fatigue but on the other side of the house it also makes sure that I don't get too big in my head and I don't think that I'm you know some special ass person <laughs> I'm just doing the work that I'm able to do because of the privileges and oppressions that I've had. And I think that that's really important as well, is that we hold that, that we have to do something, but we don't get to own the outcome. We just get to own that we did the right thing in that moment. Mm, I love that. Now, elephant in the room. Yeah. You work at a, a data organization. I heard about that. Right. I work at a, global insights organization. I'd love to learn more about like the work that you're doing at culture amp today, what you're excited about and uh, shoot, you know, I'm coming to this space, you know, I'm coming from, from uh, price waterhouse coopers, right? So I'm coming from this consulting context. Now I'm in tech, um, similar organization. I think they would, we would consider ourselves competitors. I don't know, but I'm just saying like, I would love to learn and hear more about what you're doing because the intersection of, uh, data and uh, equity, um, like workplace equity, that just it, it continues to be intriguing for me. So I'd love just to learn more about what you got going on. Yeah, I'll talk both about our competition, but also I think I'll talk about, and I might get in trouble for this, but it's you, so you get special treatment. Um, is Culture Amp, we've been working on a study that's going to be released next month, but there's some data that we've collected that I think would be really useful to you. And it's why mm. I would say, even though we're in, I, I would call it parallel spaces. I wouldn't call there it competitors. And the reason for that is, so what we learned, we surveyed a bunch of HR professionals. And what we found was that 86% of them uh, believe that DEI was valuable to their organization. So that's really great. But only 31% of them, 31% were actually measuring the effectiveness of their DEI programs. And so what we're seeing is there's this incredible deficit of data collection. And so, so much of what you do in your work and what we do in our work is assisting organizations in measuring the state of play, developing baselines, and then being able to continuously listen to employees so that they can understand whether the things they're doing are meaningfully impacting experiences. And so for, in in my mind, and this is probably just my philosophy on DEI work in general, is that we're dealing with things that are so complex, that are so deeply rooted, and quite frankly, with spaces that are so at the beginning, that like, thank God you're out there doing that, because not everyone is a right fit for Culture Amp, and not everyone is a right fit for you and the brilliance that you bring to it. But thank goodness we're both doing it, because the likelihood that we have a bigger reach is so much better. And I think that's something that we always have to remember in this kind of 
coalition required, community required change work is that each of us have a different role and we don't need to look sideways at people because they're doing the work slightly differently than us because they're in a different context. Um, like we talked about this on the last podcast, like my face manages white fragility. So like maybe I'm the one that should go be spicy with the white people first, right? Like mm. that's the thing because I look at like a black woman is going to get a lot more shit and blowback than I am for saying the same damn thing. But like what we're yeah. going to do in normalizing that work and those ideas. So anyway, I just think that's important that we have to have respect for the fact that we're each doing this. And like, quite frankly, I'd say it again, like, thank goodness we're both out there doing it because that's what it takes. You know, it's interesting, like, to your point around like the, the first of all, thank you for sharing the data point because I, you're right that, you know, patriarchy and capitalism has us like in these like really hard scarcity mindset type frameworks, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm against you. You're against me. Pause and take a step back um, and realize that the larger initiative of measuring uh, organizational equity, measuring representation, measuring progress against different goals, and the accountability that that brings is such a huge space, that even if one wanted to engage in like a scarcity mindset and competition, it's like, yo, there's plenty of place, plenty of space for everyone to play. Now let's pause and like, I re- let's say re- I reject that. Then ultimately I doubly agree with you because any effort that helps drive accountability at the executive level with these institutions that frankly, they say a lot of things, but do very little is important. Right? Like that's like, Say the data point again for the listeners. You said 86, say it again. Oh yeah. So 86% of like HR leaders and say that their senior leadership teams believe that DEI is valuable, which like McKinsey has been saying it for a decade at this point. If you don't know, like you're going to make more money if that's all you care about. Right. If, you, if, like, if, if you're important. not right if, at this point, like if you're, if you still need the business case for, for diversity, equity, then I, we just got to. Right. Like we need to talk about your reading comprehension. Skills yeah. At this point, that's crazy. Yeah. 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 And And so, but only 31% are measuring the effectiveness of their DEI programs. And I'm going to give you one more data point, or I'll probably give you too many in this conversation. Give them to me. But but so what we also found, so in our research, what the research also saw, and people will get to see lots and lots of, we have trends for race and LGBT and gender. In addition, because CultureAmp has these unique data sets where we have millions of employee responses to diversity, equity, and inclusion surveys, we can actually tell you which initiatives move the needle for employee experience. So not just Mm. what's a best practice list, but like what actually creates meaningful change for different types of experiences. So what helps people have more voice, have more things like that. But there are three things. There are three things that are the greatest predictors of successfully improving the employee experience for marginalized employees. They are having a dedicated head of DEI, having an intentional DEI strategy and measuring the impact of your initiatives. So Zach, what I am telling you is that the way to have an effective organizational equity program is to resource it the same goddamn way we would absolutely any other business initiative. Like I got that data back and I, we, me and all the analysts looked at it and we were just like, duh. <laughs> so much of the, but so this is, so to that end, right. Though, like, so much of this is 
like stuff that black and brown folks, uh, queer folks went like have been telling you, telling saying saying for decades, right? Like, but the truth of the matter is like we don't really treat this space like with the same operational rigor or just seriousness that we do other spaces, right? So like, I remember I was talking to like even and I, I've had this observation for like years now, but like when you look on Twitter. Or just even like, frankly, if you engage like a dialogue or discourse, folks are able to say the stupidest things on matters of race and gender and mental health and um, disability. And And that in itself is like an indicator of racism, homophobia, misogyny. Because if we took it serious, we wouldn't allow stupid things to be said. But like you see like big names on huge platforms saying stupid things and no one goes, hey, wait a second, you can't say that. But like if we were talking about, um, I don't know, like basic arithmetic or like, you know, thing like spaces that are seen They're literally as... like your, your, and your. <laughs> right. Right. Like we like, we, we care people because like they forget an apostrophe or something, which is totally classist, by the way. And like, it is classist. It is. It's for true. someone who loves grammar, I also see like the classism and like, yes. Inherent yes. There. But there's that. And then people say shit like, it's a pipeline problem or like, I just can't find any black talent. And I'm like, that is statistically an unintelligent thing to say. <laughs> right. Now, but, but, but people just shrug their shoulders like, well, I mean, yeah, like no one, we don't culturally push back like on any of that. And so like, you know, going to the reason I bring this up is like going back to what you said about like, yo, duh, it's because this space is so, um, it's like i want to say like it's like underinvested it's just not strong enough right it's just this space is so untapped and just like underengaged intellectually and like from a business operations perspective so yeah that doesn't surprise me that that's what we get back but at the same time it's like damn okay cuz then i think about okay so this is what we got back this time we still have like more studies to do cuz like that's the obvious stuff what at what point do we get research and data back that i'm surprised by because I know I don't know everything, but where is it at? You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think it comes down to you, the word you used that just really like jumped out at me and resonated to me was this idea of rigor. Mm. Is that um, there is a a perception that our field lacks rigor? And I have this blog post called like how do how do I get a DNI job? Um, but at the end of it, I talk about the skills that you need to have to be effective in this work. And something that like is a trend that I see that feeds into this vicious cycle of the perception of the lack of rigor in this work is that we're often putting people who are passionate, but who have not yet developed the rigor skills that they need to be effective into these roles. And I'll call out that I was that person, right? So I have learned through many mistakes and I have become more rigorous in my work through experience and through having mentors and peers and people who corrected me and and all of that. But I think you know, a lot of times we see people moving into these diversity, equity, and inclusion roles who may not have expertise in power dynamics, you know, critical race theory. And yes, I said it. We all know it's important to understand, right? Ableism, sexism, queer theory, change, anthropology, just change management, like all facilitation, educational design. These are things like actual rigorous skills that we need in order to produce organizational change. And for the most part, so many of us got put into these roles because we were the brown people complaining, 
Um, right? Like Aubrey puts her hand up. That was me. Same. And I Zach puts his hand up. Career, but I was like, why am I the only queer disabled Latina here? Um, and so that is another thing that I see is so often it's like our field has the capacity for rigor, but we also don't have the resources to make sure that everyone who's being put in it is able to grow the skills to work with the level of rigor that they would want to. And that way, then people look and say, oh, well, you're not effective. It's like, okay, well, a thousand years of structural oppression was in my way and you didn't even give me an L&D budget. Like, and yeah. again, this is, and you want to know what it's still white supremacy, like, it's still the root of the problem. But right. I think it's really important where there is an intellectual disrespect for this work because it is not That's understood it. to be rigorous. And we know that the reason that that intellectual disrespect exists is because this knowledge is primarily held and created by marginalized and oppressed people, right? Correct, correct. It kind of it kind like loosely, loosely. It kind of reminds me of an R.I.P. Anthony Bourdain. It reminds me of when Anthony Bourdain. It isn't gonna be a. This is gonna maybe this sounds random, but I feel like you th- you think a little bit differently. So maybe you'll maybe you'll see it, and if not, then tell me, and we'll just laugh. So I remember Anthony Bourdain was like, "Yo, it's like really racist that people go to Mexican restaurants and expect it to be cheap and get mad when it's like." normally like it's like price like the same as a burger and it's not like 25 cents and it's racist because y'all just naturally assume that mexican food it should be like dirt cheap because it's made by mexicans and it kind of reminds me of like what you're saying right now it's like because the 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 wielders or the 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 guardians or or holders of this information are black and brown or historically oppressed in some way um, it just it inherently is undervalued. Absolutely. Is, oh my God. is that a, is that a is that a weird? No, I think that's right? a beautiful example. So I was going to bring in a slightly different thing about Anthony Bourdain that he had a mindset that I I find like I actually reflect and like meditate on this and try to embody it because there was a thing that he always did that made me love it, which was whether he was in a Michelin star restaurant and he was mostly like fuck those people, um, but he would like walk into a you know a food cart in Malaysia. And the reverence and the respect that he had where he would eat that thing that so many people in the world would look down on or see it as cheap or whatever. And he said, I see like this person has spent 30 years learning how to do this. And I see the perfection in this thing. And I have the proper reverence for it. And I think that that attitude and that mindset and that curiosity and just that ability to see the inherent worth and dignity and value in people is a quality. Like, that's why I love that you brought it up because that is actually the work that we're doing. We're trying to create systems that create space for the equivalent of like whatever is looked down upon to be seen as of equal value, right? That, um, that the fact that we see things as having different value or people as having different value is just a collective delusion. Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. All right. So, Talked around a few different things. I'm excited about the data and the research that that Culture Amp is driving. You know, let's talk a little bit about like just like where we are like as a as a country and like kind of like political landscape. You know, I am genuinely concerned. Now, the truth of the matter is, I you know, Aubrey, I'm concerned like every day. You know, I mean, like 
I exist in this world like I exist in this world. What are your projections, if you have any, um, of like the next three to four years um, and and the political and the, the implications that um, the political landscape will have on like the work that we do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think, I mean, we all just lived through, you know, the horror show administration. I don't say certain words. Um, and I think what we see is that it's teaching us how much community care is important because the landscape is going to change. And I'll just admit, I have a political science degree. I'm terrified about what 2024 is going to look like because I understand how gerrymandering works. And I understand that we are, um, that white supremacy is severely wounded in America and there's nothing as dangerous as a wounded animal. Um, and so I am not optimistic about a lot of things in America. Um, but what I will say and something that I am optimistic about is the level of community care and organizing and organization that's happening at all levels of society. So whether that's politically, whether that's the work that we're doing in corporates to try to bring influence and power to historically oppressed and marginalized people but I think that it is going to require more and more and more strategy from DEI professionals, right? So an example, um, in the previous administration where suddenly people were freaking out and canceling their DEI training um, because, you know, the administration put out some whack thing about how unconscious bias training was racist. And I was like, oh, that's cute Orwellian doublespeak there. That is the whitest thing I've ever heard in my life. But I think it's going to require us as professionals who want to do this work to be more strategic and that I'm like, cool, you want me to change my language and call it something else and still give the education? Great. But also more courageous in that in that moment, I literally, you know, went to my boss, the CEO, and I said, you know, I'm legally obligated to advise you on this and tell you that like what we should do from a legal perspective is like cancel all of our anti-racism training. And he looked at me in the face and he said, yeah, but we're absolutely not going to do that. You know, and he was like, if we lose some contracts, we lose some contracts. That's not the commitment we made as a company. And so I think it's going to require courage on our part, right? Because it took courage for me to go to him and be like, legally, we have to do this. And also, I'm fully intending to continue training your employees on anti-racism. And he's like, good, I'm with you. But like, it's going to require that where we have to speak harder truths, where we have to demand of those that are in power above us, because we're usually never the CEO, um, unless we're running our own game. But like, that is going to be true. But we also have to be thinking ahead. How do we see what's coming down the pipe? And how do we make our, um, our strategies, our implementations, so that they're not as, um, you know, vulnerable to legal challenge, for example, because in the US, you know, this discrimination laws are written historic agnostic meaning that you can discriminate against people um, that are in fact overwhelmingly privileged and empowered depending on how things happen. There's a whole, it's called adverse impact. There's a whole mathematical formula about it. Um, but so that's something that I think is going to be ever more important is we have to be aware of the way that the legal regimes around us are going to be twisted to reinforce and re-entrench historical white supremacy and so we need to be thinking about how do we undermine those processes as they're happening? You know, something I, I continue to be curious about, and I was talking to Dr. Janice Gassum over at Forbes, shout out to Dr. Gassum. Um, and she asked a question of like, how much impact 
can corporate diversity, equity, inclusion programs really have? Or are they positioned to really make an impact? And my my response is they're not really positioned to make real, like, just upending organizational impact, like, without the coordination from some sort of like external activist force, right? Like, like, so, so it's the, it's the activist force from George Floyd's murder that mobilized all the things that we saw. Now, were all those things meaningful or like, did they all like translate and happen? Well, no, no, but, but if it wasn't for those protests, if it wasn't for, Folks jumping on top of cars and and creating a ruckus, getting on CNN, all and all the attention, then re, the reinvestment in DEI would not have happened. And so I say that to say, like, what I'm curious about is like, what means and methodologies? I wonder, or organ can organizations adopt and figure out how to work with activists or like groups outside and and like really help support coordination like to me like that seems to be like an angle or an approach that i think is one really exciting and then two i think really like can actually create change like i'm curious to get your reaction to that yeah so i want to give you some new data and then i'll answer your actual question um because i, I want to speak to the importance of you said of the work that activists do like dei professionals activists created the space for our profession to exist in the first place and they continue to create the intellectual space and the shifts in the Overton window that allow us to drive change, right? So external, so it's really important to respect that work. But one of the things coming out of this new report um, that everyone will get to see in January is we looked at trends, um, employee experience trends by race. And what we saw was that from 2020 to 2021, the experience of Black and Asian professionals um, improved by a few percentage points, which in our data set, you know, is actually a significant improvement, but the experience of Latinx and Hispanic um, employees decreased. And our interpretation, our, our assumption is that the existence of coordinated organizing bodies, right? So Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, has actually changed corporate investment in those communities. And I think what's really clear is that the work that Black Lives Matter, that Stop Asian Hate have done, have caused corporates to invest in those communities in ways that the culture amp data is showing have improved their experience in some ways. Whereas there's a lack of that kind of a singular sort of organizing force within the Latinx community for a lot of reasons. We're very, we're a very diverse, very fractured community. We're somewhat manufactured, but also real. And so that would be the first thing that I would say is just that it's very clear in the data that culture Imp is collecting, or at least the way we're interpreting it is that those groups have had a meaningful experience and impact on the way that we can do this. Now to get to your question about like, can they create meaningful change? I think my answer is it depends. And it depends on who is in power and what are they willing to give up. So I think there's a lot of organizations where you could have the most brilliant DEI practitioners in the world who have all of the skills. But frankly, like you can have the most beautiful, competent, resourced, skilled, you know, DEI team professionals in the world. But if the organization doesn't want to change, they won't. And I've learned this from experience because as much as I think, um, and we'll be putting out a report in January so people can hold us accountable for this, um, you know, we've made a lot of change since we came out and made a very aggressive commitment to anti-racism. So we've gone from 1.9% Black, for example, 
to about 5.6% black, which because of the countries we're located in, that's what we call population level representation. Mm-hmm. Australia is just a lot whiter <laughs> than America. Yes. And, and so, but that isn't an insubstantial change to go through in 18 months. And the reason for no, that, it's not. Sure, I've led some things, but if you actually want to look at who is responsible for yes. creating that change, it's our white leadership team who learned shit and got out of the way and let people do their jobs to create that change. And that takes acts of courage. It takes humility. It takes intelligence. And it right. takes the willingness to be uncomfortable as hell and to have some of your toys taken away. See, that last part, having some of your toys taken away, I think like that's the, it was in some, who was it? I don't want to, I don't want to miss a uh, quote, but someone, I mean, it might have been Dr. Aaron Thomas. I can't. Re- but anyway. Oh my God, it, she's so brilliant. Sorry, she is brilliant. No, 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 no. Shout out to shout out to Dr. Thomas. So, but there was just this idea of like, you know, the uncomfortable truth is that yes, like as we really progress towards organizational equity, some people's things will be taken away, right? And like it's like it's like, and that's okay. Some of those th- you shouldn't have had those things in the first place. Uh, but it's just, you know. I, I love the contextualization of the data as it pertains to leadership involvement. You know, you you also are the founder and CEO of the Math Path. And, you know, I have a I think I feel like I have like a somewhat nerdy question for you. Um, what does it look like to determine statistical significance for black and brown or just historically marginalized oppressed communities, right? Because the reason I ask is because sometimes we people use the phrase, oh, well, we didn't we didn't track or capture that because it was only X amount of people and that's not statistically significant. Or, well, only we don't, this population is so small that it's not statistically significant. And then, but I think about, I think about like studies that have like an actual impact on like black people. So you think about like um, prostate cancer um, for black men, right? Like black men, um, die from prostate cancer at significantly younger ages than their white male counterparts. But if you were to look at like the larger studies, um, that that data isn't always like available. And frankly, like even hospitals and things won't necessarily even encourage you to black men to, to get there to, to take those exams early. And one may say, well, because those as we look at the populations, most of the people that we study are white and, you know, it might be a handful of black people or a handful of brown people or whatever, but it's not statistically significant. But the statistical significance or rather the real life significance is people, you know, five, six years older than me are dying of cancer, of that cancer. And so, like, I, I, if this has been on my mind probably the past week or two, it's just, you know, what is the strategy that you've in what strategies or what is your point of view on on that you know, in terms of determining statistical significance when you're doing studies or research for really small data sets, particularly of historically marginalized identities? Yeah. So I think like statistical significance can be useful, but we don't need, like, we've turned it into this, like, like we have to understand that it's an arbitrary standard. See, so, that's important. See, because that's not the way it's ever presented to me. When no, I it's, it's like, researchers. because well, all like, so P equals 0.05 is like, mm-hmm the mark of scientific statistical significance and frequentist statistics. And we won't even get into frequentist versus Bayesian, but like, but this idea of like, so all that P equals 0.05 says is Mm -hmm. in 19 out of 20 simulations, this would show up as true. 
So it's very likely that this thing is true and not just an artifact of, of the day, like a statistical noise. So it okay. doesn't mean like, so, and you can, you can hold like greater standards of rigor, but something is that the, the P value or statistical significance is incredibly sensitive to N size. So by definition, when you're looking at, when you're looking at these sort of small N size populations, you're going to be blowing out your confidence intervals such that your statistical significance is going to be difficult to adjust. And I could make an argument about how this is an artifact of white supremacy and colonization so that we can't develop our own knowledge about our, our conditions so that we can respond to them. Because mm-hmm. I think but like, <laughs> right. I mean, we all know that's true, but, but I think that what I do or how I think about it is I still reference statistical significance because I think it's useful to have baselines, but where we have less data, we need to understand that patterns still matter. So if it's, it's statistically significant at P equals 0.15, but it's suggesting to us that black men are more likely to die of prostate cancer and colon cancer, right? And all of these other things. Well, maybe we should act as if it were true because the cost of acting as if it is not true is simply too high. And, so, mm-hmm. and that's the same way I think about, so to talk, like to get in really nerdy, I'll talk about the way that CultureAmp, we, so we do performance equity audits, promotional equity audits, and pay equity audits. So we audit yeah. all three parts of our core systems from a yeah race disability perspective Mm -hmm. um, ensure that equity is happening but we actually have multiple tolerances so we um, audit by broken down groups then we audit by white asian urm for our racial stuff to just double check our work but we literally consider anything that's p equals 0.1 or tighter something to be investigated so even though scientifically Mm -hmm. that actually might be below the burden of proof we're building in an assumption that the statistics won't capture something that we need to look at more closely. And so we're taking what we would consider a conservative approach. People would call that progressive. But from our point of view, we call it conservative because we have a low tolerance for the possibility of inequity in those processes. Mm. So it requires, so you can still leverage these very supremacist, colonized, models and constructs, but you have to change the way that you relate to and think about them. And so that's what we do is we basically have, if it meets the 0.05 standard, it's must be rectified. And if it meets the 0.10 standard, then it's a must be investigated. Ooh, that is fire. I ain't going to hold you. That is super and dope. I'm going to say one more nerdy data thing. Give it to me. The, the way that we think about like this must be investigated is then we also must shift our mind to understand that quantitative and qualitative data are both important data. Yes. And so for us, it's so easy in a white supremacist culture to privilege quantitative data. Yes. And that's exactly what you're speaking about. And yes. so our <laughs> mindset around it is that when the quantitative data fails us, which we expect it to at some point, we begin to trust and rely on that qualitative data. And I can't tell you, like, I can tell you that we have made changes in business processes because of the outputs of those qualitative investigations. There are employees who have had their pay or their, you know, draft promotion or their draft performance rating adjusted because on further look, we decided that we didn't think it was correct. And so it got changed. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're doing that proactively and with that mindset, leveraging all of the tools at our disposal is what creates change but what it requires is that you don't just, um, you know, sort of 
without intention adhering to what is seen as rigorous, but rather we go through an intentional process to decide which pieces of that toolbox are useful to the project and which pieces of those, which tools do we need to add to the toolbox to properly do what we call equitable design. Ugh. That was mm-hmm. really nerdy. Everyone was, like, was fire. What do you mean? Statistics. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's important. Like we started off with this about measurement and accountability. And like, this is an, a practical example of how it plays out. A hundred percent agreed as well, as well on the, the prioritization of quantitative, quantitative data over uh, qualitative data in these like white, excuse me, white supremacists and patriarchal systems. I think, you know, it's, it also goes back to like, I don't know. I was talking to my wife about it is like, you know, storytelling and like passing the oral tradition, like those things are important. And like, even just the practice and the cultural practice of telling stories, like those are data points as well. And it's easy uh, to, to minimize or dismiss or undermine uh, that. So uh, let me ask you this as I, as I wrap up and let you go, what were you most excited about at culture amp and the math pad in 2021? And then what are you most excited about as you think about 2022? What gives you the most hope? So I'm going to ask you, it's a dual question. Okay. So uh, at the math path, I'm starting to take on more like executive coaching clients. Okay. Um, so working with like directors, VPs, C-level folks on their like equitable leadership journey. And I just get so much energy out of like watching people become the people that they wish they were. Like, to get to participate in that is just a privilege that like blows me over every time. So that's what I will say is, is I like working with me. I'm working, bringing on new people right now um, to do that deep work with me. And it's just, I love that. I love that framing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, that's rad. Um, at culture amp, what am I excited about? So my role has shifted a little bit in the last year. So when I came to culture amp, I said that I wanted to be both an HR and a product executive and I'm, can't talk about it too much, but we're doing a lot of work on the product side, thinking about how do we better enable um, organizations to understand the inequities that are happening in their organization, and then with technology, help enable them to advance past that. Mm. So just a lot of really cool things that are going to be coming down the pipe and research that we're doing, um, the ways we're thinking about technology that'll be coming out in 2022, 2023. Um, I'm just like having the best time of my life, taking all of this stuff that we've learned in programs and thinking about building it into software. And then the thing that makes me most optimistic in the world right now, and this is going to be like a swerve, is the $555 billion in the infrastructure bill for climate. That is a swerve. Okay. (laughs) So like my climate anxiety is off the charts. Like I'm becoming a vegetarian. I'm selling my gas cart. Like I'm doing everything in my power to like try to be a good citizen of the of the world. Wow. But um, but in you know Obama um, passed invested about eighty million dollars into clean energy and clean tech, and that has fundamentally revolutionized the venture and financial investment systems for sustainability and green energy. And when I think about that, eighty billion dollars created a sea change. What fifty five billion dollars in investment, and that's just from the U.S., not counting investments in green energy coming from Australia and China and all of these other places is, and I say that because what we know is the environmentalism, right? There's so many racial, socioeconomic, oppressive um, impacts in there. And I think we don't talk enough about our values extending out beyond just people, but to the planet as well. So that, um, what I expect to see from that investment from like a good for humanity perspective is huge. And so that's a thing that's like helping me sleep at night. 
Aubrey, listen, you know, it's always a pleasure when you're here. I thank you for being a guest on Living Corporate. I thank you for being a, a personal resource. And uh, I'm not going to say acquaintance because we're more than that. I would say we're like professional friends, networkers. We're friends. Like, you know what I'm saying? I appreciate I would, just, I would just be like, Zach's one of my people. You're one of my people. I, straight I'm up. Like, I try to be non-hierarchical. About I like it. that. That's helpful. People. Thank you. Real talk, though. Yeah, that's I like that. Yeah, so just thank you. I'm excited about uh, what's co- what Culture Amp is coming out with. And listen, now, don't be afraid. Once it drops in January, let's come back, share some stuff so I can we can talk about it. Because I really am, you know, the 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 data strategy of it, like, and how you're how you're thinking about how you're thinking through different populations and even just the the mindset or attitude of acting on data and like because it's easy right when you look at something be like oh well only five percent of people disagree with this and i mean that's not that bad right like it's 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 e- like that that i'm trying i can I, i'm continuing to try to examine what does it look like to minimize shrug shoulders like it's just like let's let's address those things right so anyway uh Love. I appreciate like, I'm so into what you just said. Also, I have to say, like, it is always such a privilege to be in space and be in community with you. Oh. You do so much incredible work. And so I always feel like a little bit like, oh, every time we get to hang out, because I'm stop. like, what did I do to get here? Stop, 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 stop. Tur- make me turn purple. We'll talk. We'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. All right. Be well. Be blessed. Sending yes. all the good things to everybody on the line, too. Yes. Peace. Hey, yo, we're back. So look, I hope that like folks who listen to this, if you're like a data scientist or you know data scientists, you know smarty arties in your your circle, you'll send this this interview to them, right? Like hopefully you could tell that Audrey is clearly a math. She's a math path, <laughs> but she really thinks uh, differently, right? Like we talk we talked a little bit about neurodivergence but i'm appreciative of of audrey i'm appreciative of the work that she's doing i'm appreciative of the way that she's leveraging data for systemic change and even how she's acknowledging white supremacist systems and how we even you know typically or traditionally engage quantitative data and like uses those systems against themselves, which I think is dope right now. One would say you cannot dismantle uh, the master's house with the master's tools. And that is true. Um, and I find it intriguing how she still leverages tools against themselves. That's very, very curious to me. Like she does that with her eyes wide open. Also her conversation around being emotionally boundary and, and, and really what her level of responsibility and accountability is in this work, right? It's a very interesting intersection of data, organizational justice, science, uh, leadership. This is very interesting. So I, I always appreciate our discussions. And uh, she's one of my people. Like, she is one of my people. So make sure y'all check out all the links in the show notes. Learn more about what Audrey has going on. Uh, there will be more. Uh, we're going to have her back, hopefully, uh, in the new year. And uh, yeah, look, it's a really good conversation. Y'all, make sure you're taking care of yourselves. Love to you. Love to your family. Till next time, this has been Zach. You've been listening to Living Corporate. Peace.
Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.